And what that does is it links back to Genesis chapter three, verse 15, Mm. because if God didn't keep Noah and his family alive, the seed, then he would have wiped out the seed and he would not have been able to fulfill the promise of Genesis three 15. So the covenant of Genesis six, 18 preserves the covenant of Genesis three 15, that God would send a seed to have victory over the serpent. Okay. And Noah has to obey. He has to build the ark and provision it. Mm. Right. And so he does. And by his kind of typological, you know, evangelical obedience, you know, he didn't really, you know, he's not saving himself eternally. Yeah. Uh, He serves as a type of Christ, right. Where his work saves his family and helps him pass through the judgment. Welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Are you in the Orange County or Santa Ana area? We are exploring a church plant, Santa Ana Reformed with the oversight and accountability of Oceanside URC and Reverend Danny Hyde. If you are interested or you know someone who might be interested in the area, please check out our show notes for a link to sign up for updates. Our Twitter or Instagram at guiltgracepod or Santa Ana URC for the same signup link or simply email us at santaannareformed at gmail.com. We begin meetings on October 28th at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. Now on with the episode. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. This is season three, Promises and Fulfillments, and we're going through the Covenant Theology book by Crossway. So a special thank you to Crossway and the faculty from Reformed Theological Seminary who wrote the book. And we have a special guest today, one of those authors on chapter five, the Noahic covenant of the covenant of grace. And so Dr. Miles V. Van Pelt is going to be with us today, helping us through this chapter. And after this episode, feel free to check out our show notes. There's going to be a link there to Crossway where you can find the book that we are talking about. Purchase one for yourself and follow along with us. There's also a couple links to find Reformed churches near you, including the Napark churches, and a link to the Society of Reformed Podcasters. So today, let's please welcome Dr. Miles V. Van Pelt back to our show. How are you doing? Great. Glad to be here. Thanks yeah. for having me on the show again. One of the lucky few who's back, or one of the non-lucky few. It depends <laughs> on how you see it. I see the lucky few. <laughs> gotcha. Yes. Yeah, and we share we share the love of uh, theology, and we share the love of CrossFit, too. That's All exactly three of us right. are CrossFitters. Right. You know you're really a CrossFitter when you're wearing a CrossFit t-shirt, and all three of us are wearing CrossFit t-shirts. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> standard evening apparel. That's right. I have, have 9,000 of these shirts, so it's, yeah. it's kind of what I wear all the time. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you guys follow us on Twitter, we're trying to reach out to Dr. Van Pelt about the, <laughs> uh, about the Murph workout. We're trying to do a fun little contest to see who got the best score. Dr. Fesco mm-hmm. was very – he was, he was tell, sharing what he got and everything. 
Um, I can't, Dr. Van Pelt, what did you get on Murph? What did you just it say? Like 4825 or something, I think we looked it up. Crushed it, crushed it. So it crushed me. me. So it crushed me. <laughs> yeah. Plus we do, no, it in the we do it in the Mississippi heat. So I, I, weigh, I lose like five pounds over the course of that 50 minutes. Oh, that's just, a good deal. Just through flooding, just through fluid loss. Heck yeah. Wow. It's brutal. So technically you're, you're, you're five pounds lighter at the end of the workout. So that vest isn't doing much for you. That's exactly right. I'm dropping weight like crazy. <laughs> that's right. It's <laughs> an unfair advantage. <laughs> so we actually are adding something a little extra fun in this episode. We went on Twitter and we found some people that wanted to ask you some specific questions. So it's uh, up to us when we want to bring those questions up and, and uh, have you address them. But how about this? Just to kind of warm things up, um, how about you introduce the chapter for us? Because uh, you know best how to explain why you wrote it, what it's about, um, why this is connected to covenant theology and overall uh, redemptive history. Yeah. I wrote it because the, the the three editors who collaborated on the table of contents asked me to write it. And so I felt both honored and obliged to comply, and given the fact that I'm on that team at RTS. And so uh, I loved working with Guy Waters and John Meether and Nicholas Reed. Nicholas Reed, who is one of my first students at RTS Jackson back oh, that's right, in yeah. 2003 and stuff like that. So it was great to work with those guys. And um, I was... I have not done, I had not done before this, a lot of work on the Noahic Covenant. Hmm. And, um, you know, I had studied it in seminary, you know, I've worked through it a couple of times uh, just as I went through Genesis and stuff, but I had not taken up the academic study of that just, you know, seriously. It kind of seems like one of the more minor covenants in the administration of the covenant of grace. And so, hmm. you know, you get big times like Abraham and David and Moses and those covenants, but no, it's just kind of like, it's a flood, it scares people, and then there's common grace again. And I was really overwhelmed. I was, I was constantly delighted uh, by what I found there. There, was, there were challenges at every step. And so the Noahic Covenant is really, when you think about the Noahic Covenant appears in Genesis chapter 9. The Noahic Covenant that appears in Genesis chapter 9 is a covenant that reestablishes common grace after the flood. Yeah. So at the time period, at the time of the flood, God suspended common grace. We kind of had an intrusion of eschatological judgment in, in kind of prefigurement. Yeah. Um, that takes place. And then God restores common grace where both the wicked and the righteous can coexist. The, the seed of the, the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan can coexist until the final seed comes. And so, uh, I mean, think of all the challenges you've got. Uh, the sons of God and the daughters of man. You've got the nature of the favor that Moses or that Noah finds in chapter six. You've got a covenant in chapter six that may or may not be related to the covenant in chapter nine. And then you've got things like the rainbow and then the strange stuff at the end where you've got, uh, where you've got one of uh, Noah's sons uh, looking upon his father's nakedness and the curse that ensues from that just seems like some weird kind of ending. Hmm. And so it was really an exegetical exercise to kind of, work through the end of Genesis chapter five, all the way through Genesis chapter nine to see the context and the fullness of the Noahic covenant. So that's kind of the nature of the chapter is what is this eschatological judgment ordeal, kind of the flood, this kind of redemptive judgment. Uh, what is the covenant that comes before and after it? And how, do, how does that work as administration of the covenant of grace? Yeah. So Genesis is filled with these covenants. You've got 
you know, the covenant of grace that's inaugurated in Genesis chapter three, then you've got the Noahic covenant, then you've got the Abrahamic covenant, all, all um, into, the, into the first parts of Genesis. And once you get out of Genesis, it's really just Mosaic, Davidic, and new that are left. Mm. So you've got a lot going on in these early chapters of Genesis. Yeah, Maybe Genesis. to help with some definition stuff for those who hear the covenant or the common grace and then covenant of grace. And so sometimes that can get mixed up. So can you describe what both those are in the Noahic? Yeah, there's a footnote in there and a spot where I talk about that at the very beginning. So the covenant of grace begins in Genesis chapter three and is set up in the context of the fall. So in Genesis chapter one and two, God enters into a covenant of works with the first Adam. That fails in Genesis chapter three. Even though it fails, it's still in effect. People are either in Adam or in Christ even now. But a different way for God's people enter into eternal life has now been created by God in Genesis chapter three. And it's called in opposition to the covenant of works, the covenant of grace. And it's grace because we're, we will enter it by faith in the merits and works of another. That covenant of grace that spans all the way from Genesis chapter three to the end of the Bible has several different administrations. So there's the, there's the Noahic administration, the Mosaic, the Abrahamic, the Davidic, et cetera. So, but in Genesis chapter three, when God institutes the covenant of grace, he also institutes something, what we call common grace. That is, he delays his final judgment, right? He says, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. He delays that period until the promise of the seed could come. And so it's a period of common grace where both the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, the righteous and the unrighteous, live together in a world that God, God blesses each, each party in that they have food, they have rain, they have sun, they have shelter, all that kind of business until the seed shall come. So mm -hmm. the covenant of grace is what's fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. Common grace is the playing field on which the covenant of grace takes place. So common grace allows for sinners to still live in this earth without being proofed in a final judgment automatically. Hmm. Okay. That's the word. And that was suspended in the flood. Yeah. God suspended common grace in the flood and God will suspend common grace when he returns, when Christ returns to the second coming, common grace will be over. Hmm. The, the wheat and the chaff will be separated, right? The sheep and the goats will be separated. And that happened in the flood. And you can see it typifies it that only a remnant will make it through. Yeah, that whole remnant, just one family of all the families of the earth at that time passed yeah. through the flood judgment waters. Yeah, and on that final one you're mentioning in the chapter that <clears throat> Peter mentions, not Peter Bell here. The, right. Peter we'll be too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, that God's not going to destroy the world by a flood. And uh, again, he's going to do it by fire. Right. So that's exactly right. Uh, and if you look, that's both water and fire are symbols of judgment in the Old Testament. And so you can see like yeah. Sodom and Gomorrah is wiped out by, you know, by flaming meteors or something like that. Um, you can see Peter wanting to call down fire on people. <laughs> yeah. uh, I so, have that problem. Yeah. You, you can also, <laughs> in Isaiah 43, it says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When the flame, they will not touch you or harm you. Huh. The waters and fire are both symbols of judgment. Interesting. So, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> and of course, that becomes, is... that becomes the background then for the crossing of the Red Sea, right? It becomes the background for baptism. Yeah. And that, so all yeah. those, 
even, yeah, so the flood, the Red Sea, even creation is a judgment event that occurs with the water splitting open. Yeah, yeah. that's true. But, it, but it's a positive thing. It's all declared good by God. There's no negative aspect to it before huh. the fall. Yeah, that was fascinating. When you went into that in the chapter where you're, what you're just talking about is it reverses the days of creation of uh, the second, third days of creation where the, the waters will reunite the right. waters of the heavens. Yeah, that was, I had never thought about that before. Yeah. So, yeah, the flood event is an uncreation event. And so the splitting of the waters in days two and three are reversed so that the chaos, the tohu, wabohu, the, the uninhabitable and uninhabited becomes mm. true again. Yeah. It's not until the waters divide again that in chapter eight, where you actually have recreation, where the, where the spirit again, or the wind blows over the <clears> waters, but same word for spirit in Hebrew. Yeah. Yeah. You realize a new redemptive event is occurring with this stuff. That's exactly right. Yeah. There's a, there's a new wow. creation. So just like after the, after the judgment, there's a new creation. So after the final judgment, there'll be a new creation as well. Revelation 21 and 22. <clears throat> hmm. Well, I think maybe right here is a, is a good time to, to ask one of these questions. So Daniel Cook posed a question on Twitter. And so he said, with the Noahic covenant, is all of humanity in it? Does it have special ramifications for those in the subsequent covenants? With the Noahic covenant, not only is all of humanity in it, according to um, Genesis 9, but all animals and even the earth is mm. in it. So you can look at that language there in Genesis 9. In fact, just allow me to pull it up for a second. Small um, creation. Sorry, get out of space. Oh, shoot. Yeah, because you were saying it was a plural uh, terminology versus in Genesis 6, it was an individual singular terminology with just Noah. In Genesis right. 9, it's plural with all creation. Yeah, we could, Yeah, that's a good point to talk about in a second. So it says here in, in Genesis 9, 8, um, then God said to Noah and his sons with him, verse nine, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, yeah. as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood and never destroy it. And so there's all this language and it goes on further to talk about that. So that's exactly what's right. It's not just with human. It's not just with a family. It's not just with humanity but it's with humanity and all living creatures. Yeah. And then maybe attaching that, that second question. So how does the Noahic, how does this interact with the rest of the covenants that come after it? Yeah. The, so here's what it is. The Noahic covenant is a non-redemptive covenant. Okay. In Genesis chapter nine, meaning by being in it, you can't be saved, right? It exists because of the reality of sin. It doesn't exist to remove sin. It exists because of sin. Right. And so the Noahic covenant is the playing field on which the other covenants of the administration of the covenant of grace take place. Right. So, for example, in Genesis chapter three, right, God issues, you know, judgments on the serpent, judgments on the woman, judgments on the man. But he's still uh, even though but he's still um, there, there's not going to be just death, but there'll be life in childbearing, but there'll be pain in that. And in your work, you'll still work, but it will be subject to futility. So you'll, you do best sweat of your brow and thorns and thistles and stuff like that. So, so God institutes, you know, we're living under the weight of the curse 
in this world, even the world is groaning under it, but at least it's not final judgment, right? And so there's, there's hope for this seed and the seed to be the new covenant head or mediator mm-hmm. through which people will be united by faith and be saved. So would so, you say maybe so, like, yeah, go ahead. Like maybe not clarify or like making this concise that the, the Noahic covenants maybe add space for the rest of the covenants to develop. So it keeps both the seed of the promise and the seed of the serpent continuing on this line. So the vid can develop. And then the, the covenants that's consummated in Christ eventually in consummation is allowed to develop with both of those lines through the Noahic. Does that make sense? Yes, that does make sense. I'm looking for the spot in the book where I can turn. Yeah, I can't find it. I mean, it's so, the article's pretty long. The essay's pretty long. Um, yeah, and so what it does, what it does is it it reinstitutes um, certain principles of life that existed before the fall. Uh, so, for example, in Genesis one and two, God blesses humanity. In Genesis nine one, God blesses humanity. In Genesis chapter one, God uh, commands humanity to increase and fill the earth. He commands Moses and his family to do the same in Genesis nine one. Um, they have dominion over the animal kingdom before. And Genesis 9, provision for food, restriction from food, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or the restriction of blood in 9, Genesis 9. Humanity is created in the image of God. And so you've got all these things reconstituted with new sanctions. And the two sanctions, so those are kind of, uh, those are kind of the, the realities of the common grace covenant. These things are reestablished after the flood in the new creation. They still exist. And then there are some sanctions, so don't uh, eat blood and the institution of capital punishment, or before, it appears that it was God's job to, mm. um, to inflict punishment for sin, especially murder. Yeah. But God hands that over to the state in Genesis chapter 9, yeah. because you know, the infraction of being created in the image of God and then violating that image in, in murder. Mm. So those are the two sanctions that exist there. So where, <clears throat> where we've left off on Genesis 9, we are still living in that it's it, that covenant that um, covenant of common grace yeah. is still going on since Genesis nine right now. Exactly right. The post-Diluvian world, yeah, after the flood, exists in the covenant of grace. Everyone does. Your dog, your cat, every cattle, <laughs> you know, yeah. your kids, the the atheist, you yeah. know what I mean, the whatever. Yeah. Everyone who is living on this earth lives in the context of the covenant of common grace. That's common why grace. an unbeliever can still find a Chick-fil-A sandwich delicious. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Are- actually, this, this kind of maybe just to add another um, listener question to this as well. So Roy or Ryan Gano asks, how, how should I personally apply and communicate to others what the Noahic teaches and its commands? And I'm guessing he thinks both believers and non-believers alike. So how does it apply today as we're interacting with those who are believers and non-believers? Well, I, I mean, I, don't, I, I may want to nuance his question. Um, the Noahic covenant doesn't exist to curb sin. It exists because of sin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does, it, you can't get saved by being in it. Being in it means you have the potential of not, is, is, you can be not saved or saved. It's just like Everyone is in covenant with God, right? There's not a human being in the history of the world who has not been or is not in covenant with God. You're either in Adam or in Christ, 
Yeah. That's covenant language, Romans 5. And so common grace is represents the, the reality that both those in Adam and in Christ still live together in a world uh, currently where God bestows blessings on both those who are in Adam and in Christ, the blessings of food, family, uh, clothing, shelter, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, happiness, sorrow, stuff like that. It's still a world that groans and is, you know, subject to futility. Yeah. But non-believers still, you know, benefit from God's gracious preservation of the order. So this this is called, you know, this is called a period of delay. We're waiting for the delay to be over when Christ returns and enters into final judgment. Yeah. Because then we'll be saved through that judgment, right? Just as Noah and his family was saved, not from judgment, but through judgment. So we'll experience that, but we will be sheltered in the ark of our union with Christ, uh, symbolized by baptism, and come out on the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're mentioning that the ark passes through the waters of judgment. Right, right. Judgment is always, because judgment is necessary, everyone will experience it, right? And so, but, but in the ark, that Noah experienced judgment, but he passed through it because he was sheltered into God's ark house, right? Yeah. And so we are sheltered like that by union with Christ. Like we, because of our union with Christ, we come through the flood judgment waters with the approbation. Behold, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Yeah. Right. Our union with Christ gets us that declaration as we pass through the waters, but notice that Christ had to pass through the waters first. He's not yeah. exempt from judgment yeah. he passed through it on our behalf. Yeah. yeah. And maybe if you can go into as well, I mean, Nick was, was kind of moving there um, with the arc being this microcosm of mm-hmm. the cosmos almost like a, a future temple yeah. and the garden of eden and stuff and so if you can explain a little bit how does the ark show yeah. us that this is our avenue through judgment yeah so the ancient near eastern like cosmology had kind of a three-tiered worldview uh there were uh the heavens above right there was the earth and the waters below and in the heavens above there were windows through which the water came and in the earth or the waters below, there was a door that kept the waters out. Mm. And so, uh, and the ark has those three tiers, those windows and that door. Does that make sense? Yep. So when Noah's building this, he's, you know, he's realizing and, and, and Moses and his people are realizing that this is a, a recreation of the world. Mm. And so God's going to preserve the world. And, you know, the ultimate world is a big mega temple, right? The new heavens and the new earth is a mega temple. Yeah. With, with the lamb at the center of it. And so, yeah, the ark, the ark is a type of the tabernacle, a type of the temple, a type of the new heavens and new earth. Yeah. Um, the word there, interestingly, for that's used for the word ark only appears two other times in the Hebrew yeah. Bible. Was it Teva? Yeah. And it's, it's what Moses passes through the waters is when he's, when he's in the water. Yeah. Yeah. And so he comes out and leads God's people through the waters again unto salvation. So it's this whole theme that this yeah. ark. So the ark is the house of God's presence, and it, God is shut up in that house with them. So it's a theocracy, huh. right? Mm-hmm. And that's why there was the prohibition in the ark for no clean or you know they couldn't eat any unclean food. Uh, yeah. Only two times, only two times that um, in the Bible are we prohibited from eating unclean food. It was in the ark, and under the Mosaic legislation. Huh. Now that's gone. So I had a pork tonight for dinner. exactly yeah bacon is great yeah that's fascinating yeah since we're kind of 
towards the beginning of the of your conversation in in a chronological order of more of the pre-diluvian area let's go back to genesis 9 real quick um you said that even noah's name brings relief and it means rest and actually when he was born in genesis uh, 5 it reversed some terminology of the curse where there's like cursed ground and pain yeah yeah so um noah's father lamech Mm -hmm. uh named noah in um in chapter five towards the end verses 28 29 yeah it says like lamech lived 182 years he fathered a son and called his name noah saying this one will bring us relief from our work and from the pain of our hands because of the ground that was cursed and so lamech is expressing his faith that yahweh is at work to reverse those curses from Genesis chapter three, specifically verse 17, the word cursed and ground and pain all appear in chapter three, verse 17, and in chapter five, no. verse 20, 29, but in reverse order. And so that suggests that Noah's father is hoping that God will use Noah to, and he does, he does use Noah to reverse it, but to begin the reversal, not to, not to consummate mm. that reversal. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And so, and Noah's name does mean rest. And it's related. It's also kind of related to the um, what it says in there. Uh, the verb translated to bring relief is Naham, and it has the first two letters are the same as Noah's name. So it's a word play on that as well. Yeah. So Noah, the rest, you know, Mister Rest is going to bring us some relief, hmm. and those two words are related in Hebrew. And so, and that in fact, that word uh, to bring relief, Naham, appears also in chapter six right afterwards when God regrets or relents that he had made man. And so he's going to act in a specific way. It's the same verb, just translated differently. Hmm. And maybe acting chronologically from what Nick just, and, and going back to a comment that Nick made with the singular you in Genesis six and the okay. plural you in Genesis nine with this, I will establish not create or whatever, uh, the kum versus the karats in Genesis six and what he says in Genesis nine. So can you explain why is he just talking to Moses? in genesis 6 is this is this like some obedient covenant is this how does this relate to the covenant of grace covenant of works and, and later yeah. on it's a great question and it's central to the text and of course it's debated so there you go everything's debated <laughs> yeah. right? so the first time the word covenant appears in the hebrew bible is genesis 6 18 where god enters into a covenant with noah and the question is is the covenant mentioned in genesis 6 18 a proleptic reference to the covenant made in Genesis nine, or is its own, or is it its own reference? Okay. It's you mean proleptic, like it's foreshadowing or it's pointing towards something, right? Yeah. And so there are, there are a number of layers of evidence. I hold to the view that the covenant in Genesis six is different than the covenant in Genesis nine. Mm -hmm. There's several reasons for that. One of the reasons is just in terms of uh, the, the, the object of the verb when referring to Noah and his family versus the world. So in Genesis chapter uh, six, God says eight times that I'm going to make a covenant with you, 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 you. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the second, second masculine singular, singular in all, all in chapter six, it's all singular. Um, in Genesis chapter nine, the, the pronoun is, is two MP. So you plural, you plural, you plural, or y'all, if you want to do the Southern version of it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so the object is different. In Genesis chapter six, it's singular. 
In Genesis chapter nine, it's plural because we know it's with Noah and his family and even all of the earth. In our English Bibles, we don't see the difference because you can be both singular and plural. But in Hebrew, singular and plural have different forms. So it's very yeah. easy to see. The second thing in Genesis chapter six, the, uh, the promise to Noah there, the covenant with Noah there is because of his righteousness. And it's that he will preserve Noah's family through the flood judgment ordeal. So in the context of the suspension of common grace and the intrusion of judgment, God is going to keep Noah's family alive. And what that does is it links back to Genesis chapter three, verse 15, mm. because if God didn't keep Noah and his family alive, the seed, then he would have wiped out the seed and he would not have been able to fulfill the promise of Genesis three fifteen. Mm. So the covenant of Genesis six eighteen preserves the covenant of Genesis three fifteen that God would send a seed to have victory over the serpent. Okay. And Noah has to obey. He has to build the ark and provision it. Mm. Right. And so he does. And by his kind of typological, you know, evangelical obedience, you know, he didn't really, you know, he's not saving himself eternally. Yeah. Uh, he serves as a type of Christ, right. Where his work saves his family and helps him pass through the judgment. Uh, that kind of thing. His family passed through the judgment. Um, the covenant in Genesis nine is, um, is, is with the whole world. It's that common grace covenant. And so it's to not just to know, but it's to know his family, all the animals, uh, and, and the world itself, the earth itself, they won't wipe it out again. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And in, in Genesis six, it all, the act of obedience by him needing to build the ark sounds like covenant of works language to me uh during a covenant of grace era obviously but it's it, it kind of to me was thinking oh this is foreshadowing that he is a second adam figure but not the ultimate second adam as in christ but pointing to christ also so he's kind right. of pointing backwards to adam and forwards to christ right working is in a kind of an obedience to, to build the ark. Yeah. Um, you're right. So here's what I, here's what it's called. Klein does a good job on this. It's really called typological obedience. Mm. Just like the tabernacle and the temple are not the ultimate tabernacle and temple. They're not perfect, but they serve as, as shadows and signs of what is to come. And so Noah, um, you know, because of his righteousness, God favors him. He has evangelical obedience and he obeys, you know, building an ark in a time when it would probably seem hilarious to do so. <laughs> yeah. um, and um, he's a preacher of righteousness, they talk about, right? Oh, yeah. And he, right. And he says, even in, um, in Ezekiel, it says that judgment is coming. And even if, like, oh, is it um, Daniel, Noah, and Job uh, came, they could only save themselves because of their righteousness. And so their righteousness couldn't be imputed to anybody and it couldn't suffer the curse of the fall, but it was kind of this typological symbolic hmm. obedience that helps us to point to what the, what the true seed hmm. will really do for us. It will be atypical, <clears throat> full, not partial. Yeah. So this just is like, just like David is a type of the ultimate King and Solomon's a type of the ultimate King. Right. So Moses or so Noah is a type. Hmm. Um, like Moses is a type, a shadow yeah. of what is to come. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is this is more 
kind of thinking of people who are thinking of the Noahic covenant. So they, I've heard some people say in Genesis nine, two or three, when it says, now you can eat of the meats, they say, well, before this, they're all vegetarians. Now post Noah that they can now eat meat. And you kind of talk about that. I know it's not, it's not the most crucial thing in the Noahic covenant, but can you talk about like the vegetarian versus meat? I know people think about it when they think of Noah. Yeah. I mean, part of it is they're setting up, Part of the purpose is not kind of etiological, like when did human when did humans first eat meat? Um, so, so it's Genesis nine three, and so the question so the question is, were the only vegetarians up until this point, and then uh, did they eat meat afterwards? Uh, the problem so it's a complicated issue. Um, some people will argue that there was people could eat meat before the fall. Okay. Some people argue no. Um, some people argue that no, this means this is, you know, this is the only time you can eat meat. If, so check out this. So one, Cain is making, I mean, Cain and Abel are sacrificing in Genesis chapter four. Yep. Well, the only reason you sacrifice is to eat meat. <laughs> That's, That's true. Yeah. Okay. Secondly, if there were clean and unclean provisions on the ark, right? Mm-hmm. Then that means they were eating meat on the ark. Right, because they were on the ark for a very long time. Yeah, and vegetation would not have lasted that long. Right, everything would have been done after a week, especially with moisture. Hmm. Right, so they were probably basically, you know, living paleo, uh, (laughs) paleo meat diets. You know, they were probably in massive ketosis. So (laughs) (laughs) that's true. Yeah, I mean, you you know, if you add up all the days they were on that ark, there was, you know it would have been very tough hmm. to have it. You know, they might've had grain, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, no, no vegetables, no vegetation, stuff like that. And this is, this is the last question on my behalf. And then Nick can take the, the rest of them. So with you at the very end, you talk about the, the rainbow, the bow as the sign of the covenants, as it relates to God, remembering the covenant, and you bring up some good stuff. And I think it, it would help be helpful for others thinking, how do we understand the rainbow is it an archer's bow? Like what, like what, how is this, how is this, under, how do we understand the covenant sign of the Noahic versus all the other covenants? Yeah, that's a great question because with most of the other signs, we have explanations of what they represent. Do you know, like the, this, this, the, the Sabbath covenant sign, right? Uh, yeah. the, the, um, the Sabbath covenant sign. So the baptism covenant sign, circumcision, they all, the rainbow sign, you know, there is no explicit statement about what it represents. So there are some people think because of the word like warrior's bow, like bow and arrow Uh and rainbow are the same. It's a, it's a symbolic gesture of Yahweh hanging up his warrior bow of judgment in the clouds until the eschatological, uh, you know, last judgment. So he's, he's suspending global annihilation until the end. And that, that that's possible, but it's, it's, it's unsupportable. Hmm. Okay. Um, Some have suggested that the rainbow uh, is a great sign because it's universal in nature, both the righteous and the wicked can see it. And so Hmm. it bears witness against all. Whereas something like baptism or circumcision is mostly, you know, a family issue. Okay. Um, Interestingly, um, the only other time that the word rainbow occurs is in association with God's throne 
both I think it's in Ezekiel and then in the book of Revelation. Yeah. And so what it could do is it could remind us that in this common grace world, we see a lot of terrible things happening, mm-hmm. wars and famine and poverty and death, that God is still on his throne and controlling this world and bringing it to its final destiny. So I like when I see the rainbow, I like to, I like to think of God's throne hmm. and that, and that in the midst of this common grace world, he's still in charge, even though it doesn't seem like it sometimes. Hmm. So That's a good point. That, yeah. 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 And even if it means the words, but that doesn't mean it can't remind us of God's throne because that's where all those colors encircle him in his glory. And so hmm. I still want to think of that and, and, and that being our ultimate destiny. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I do have a question about <clears throat> some of the terminology too, because usually when the covenant, a covenant is explained, it's usually to establish or to cut. And okay. so there's some good explanation that you put in the chapter of establishing is confirming an existing covenant and to cut is like a new covenant. And a good example of that is symbol symbolizing is, the old uh, circumcision in the old Testament. So my ultimate question about this is how it affects our understanding of what the covenant is dependent upon yeah. based on the effects or establish yeah. or to cut. Okay. So here, here's, here's the story. And you can, you can go to this section in the, in this chapter here, and there's a footnote in it that footnotes uh, Gentry and Wellam's book kingdom through covenant. Yep. And there's a section there, it's like in the 150s or 180s, I forget off the top of my head, where Gentry does a thorough exegetical discussion, as only Gentry can do, <laughs> of the, the verbal correspondence between how a covenant is made. And there are two primary verbs, not only two, but two primary verbs that, that um, go with the word covenant in terms of enacting one. So the first one in Hebrew is it's kum, to establish or affirm, Okay. And the second one is karath or to cut, okay? So in, in our English Bibles, when it said God made a covenant, for example, with Noah, or let's say God made a covenant with Abram in Genesis 15, it says God cut a covenant with Abram mm-hmm. in Genesis 15. And then you can see they're cutting up animals and they're making covenants, right? In, ex- in Genesis 6 and in Genesis 9, uh, that verb is not used is to establish or to affirm. So here's what is normally argued. I think this has the most weight behind it. To cut a covenant is to make a new covenant or engage in covenant renewal. Hmm. To establish or affirm a covenant is to, to live in light of a previous arrangement, to remember, to be faithful, to, 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 to establish or to um, affirm it. Okay. Now here's, here's the gig. The question then is in Genesis 6 and Genesis 9, if it's if it's kum to establish or affirm a covenant, what covenant? Hmm. Because the word covenant doesn't occur until Genesis 6. Now we know the old story, just because there's not the word for covenant there doesn't mean there's not covenant. Yeah. Right? In 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David. They don't use the word for covenant, but all the covenantal things are there. And then in the Psalms and later on, they're always talking about the Davidic covenant, the covenant God made with David. So... So I argue that um, the verbs uh, kum in Genesis chapter six and Genesis chapter nine to establish or affirm a covenant, go back to Genesis chapter three mm-hmm. and where, where the inauguration of the covenant of grace begins in, in three, three chapter 14, think the 
chapter three, verses 14 and 19. And so when God says in Genesis chapter six, verse 18, I'm going to affirm or establish my covenant with you. What covenant? Well, that's the covenant made back in Genesis 3, 14 and 19, that he will send the seed of, the, of a woman hmm. to vanquish Satan. And then the one in chapter nine is the common grace covenant started there as well, that he's going to suspend or delay judgment until the end. Hmm. So they are, they are covenants that are living in light of the Genesis three reality. Does that make sense? So, hmm. that's yeah. so yeah. And so for example, a good example of how that works is in Genesis chapter 15, God cuts a covenant with Abram. Hmm. Then in Genesis 17, when he gives him the covenant sign of circumcision, he uses the verb kum. So I'm going to affirm my covenant from Genesis mm. 15 with you by giving you this covenant sign. Mm. That makes sense. So that's how that's working. Then when they make the Mosaic covenant, they're cutting a covenant, right? And you're cutting animals and sprinkling blood everywhere, that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. So that's, that's a new, that's a new administration of the covenant of grace kind of thing. Yeah. So. No, this is, this is all pointing to each other, which is just, the fun part about the Bible and, and the more you learn, the more you realize it's pointing to each other and unpacking right. itself. One thing you said, a couple more questions. I know we're short on time, but you ready? You ready to go? I'm going to just knock these out. <laughs> okay. We'll make it quick. Okay, cool. So you, this is a, a tiny sub question, so you don't have to go into it too much, but you do mention how God remembers something and then like even in genesis 7 to 8 during the worldwide flood he remembers his covenant and it's not a way it's not a way of explaining that he forgot something and he's like oh yeah it's it's a different way of how god remembers something can you explain that for the audience yes i can just so you get the reference it's genesis 8 it's genesis 8 1 and um so here's what it is and there's, there's footnotes in the in the chapter so you can have more there um, remembering and forgetting uh, have covenantal overtones in Hebrew. They're not just like remembering. I'm calling. I'm calling a fact. Recalling a fact, or forgetting. I'm not forgetting something. For example, in the book of Judges, uh, it's either Othniel or Ehud. God says uh, that you have done evil. That you have done evil in the sight of the Lord. You have forgotten um, Yahweh, your God. So it's like, yeah, Judges 3 7. Yeah, it's so it's like gospel amnesia. Yeah. It doesn't mean they forgot Yahweh, like they, you know, they, they forgot his name and now they need to go look it back up in the books. It means they weren't living in light of the covenant. Yeah. Okay. Remembering means I'm living in light of the covenant. Okay. And so when God remembers Noah in 8 1, he's remembering the covenant of 6 18. He's acting in light of that covenant. Okay. Just like the verb to know in Hebrew has covenantal overtones. For example, when Adam knew his wife Eve, she conceived. Mm -hmm. Well, he just didn't think about her. He engaged in covenantal activity. Does that make sense? Yeah. So when God yeah. says, you only have I known <laughs> of all the families of the earth, it doesn't mean he forgot the other ones. Yeah. That he's only in covenant with Israel. Yeah. Right. So this language, this will be a bit of a pun, is pregnant. With meaning <laughs> yeah so because knowing and remembering and forgetting are all related to the covenant and covenant life and yeah. so it's just it's more than like oh yeah there's a big flood down there and oh yeah noah's down there i better go save him no mm. yeah. Not that. yeah yeah it's, yeah, yeah. 
that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so to so to cap it off, you can give short answers here, um, <laughs> yeah. but. Uh, What's your viewpoint? Uh, Peter and I are really. Oh, I know. I know what question. We'll have a friendly bet on this. <laughs> I know worldwide, that. I know. I know Van Pelt's answer. Yeah. yeah wor- worldwide flood versus regional. And second question is your thoughts on the Nephilim. Okay. I knew that one was going to come. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Rapid okay. fire. Very easy questions. Number one, uh, I'm definitely a big fan of worldwide flood. Yeah. Um, let's see. Because of Genesis 9, 15, it says, I'll begin in verse 13. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I'll remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Do you see that? The waters, let's see, what does it say? And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So first, the word all there is used, and that's a little bit of evidence. But two, we have had since the flood, hundreds of thousands of local area floods, right? Where, where land has been destroyed, people have died just recently, right? Uh, and so animals have been destroyed. So if it was a local flood and God's saying, I'm not going to ever do that again, that'd be a violation of his promise, right? It had to be a completely universal thing. And that fits with the typological significance of the eschaton as well, right? Like it's, it's gonna be worldwide, global. The only survivors will be those in the ark or in the ark of God's presence. And so I'm definitely, I don't, I don't know how it works out science-wise. <laughs> yeah. Theologically, I'm, I'm committed to the statement that God will never do this again. And I know God is still in charge and there are still floods and people dying from floods. So, I, might, I might be too stubbornly clinging. <laughs> you, have to, yeah. you have to be that's why i know you know i know, you know <laughs> yeah. I'm that I, you almost after reading your chapter you almost had me okay. on worldwide flood and then i was like i just can't do it that's okay that's okay i'm with, I'm I'm with you just figure out we get in heaven I'm, yeah I'm it's not you. not not salvific yeah totally okay the other thing is so the other thing is relates to the very first few verses of chapter six the sons of god and the daughters of man mm-hmm. And the Nephilim, who yeah. are associated with them. And you, there are basically three views about the sons of God and the daughters of man. Uh, the, the sons of God are the, are the line of Cain, the daughters are the line of Seth. The daughters of man are the line of Cain and are intermarrying. That's got problems because you've got the godly remnant doing the bad stuff. Yeah. Uh, the next, and that's like a John Curd argument. He holds to that. Yep. Uh, Meredith Klein holds to a view where the sons of God are dynastic kings. Mm-hmm. And the daughters of man are kind of the, 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 the vassals and they're, they're waging war, having harems, doing that kind of stuff, corrupting the world order. That's possible. Uh, then people like Van Gammer and Michael Heiser more recently argued that the sons of God are angelic beings because every time the word sons of God are used everywhere else in the Bible, in the Old Testament, there it's, you know, the divine beings, mm-hmm. some, one of the Elohim class and the daughters of man are humans and they're um, commingling. And that seems to be the view that both Peter and Jude take. And again, you can, you can look at that as well. Um, and so for me, the Nephilim are the offspring of that. Uh, and you can read the argument in the chapter. I know it sounds wacky um, <laughs> and believe me, I've held to all three views. 
Yeah. And all three of the views that I just mentioned, like the one by Kurd, the one by Klein, the one by Van Gimmeren, they're all reformed, like covenant theologians, you know, so this is a tough issue. I'm not, yeah. so I hold it lightly, you know, and, um, but the best argument to, to me exegetically and even theologically having considered it more is that they're, they're divine beings and that they've left their place in heaven and corrupted humanity because they're trying to stop yeah. uh, the seed coming by corrupting it. And so God wipes them out. And one of the first thing the Israelites have to do is wipe out those giants in, in, in Canaan where they seem to exist. Yeah. So, uh, and, and the Nephilim, if you want to, you, I'll just mention this, Peter Gentry, who, who um, wrote that book, uh, Kingdom Through Covenant, he has a section in there, but he also has a good YouTube explanation that Southern <laughs> Seminary put out where he talks about the sons of God, and the daughters of man, the Nephilim, and then Jude and Peter. I think he does a great job. It's about 15 to 20 minutes. And you can, you can listen to that there. Just look at Peter Gentry, sons of God, and you'll pop it right up. Maybe in your show notes. But yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. Yeah. As the only two things I disagree with Dr. Van Pelt and it's the West calling me. Is, is it, what do you, what's your view? Uh, it's we, we, we would, we're taught and what I see based off Klein's article and, and cause the yeah. sons of God one, that's hard for, that's hard for us to, to overcome. Yeah, yeah I agree. That's I agree. really hard. So get, get the, get the article or S, the article by Van Gemmeren. I've read all of them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Who used to teach at RTS Jackson. Yeah. And, uh, or have you read, uh, Michael Heiser's book, um, the unseen realm? I've heard about it. Okay. I recommend it with some cautionary, you know, uh, cautionary wisdom, you know, be, you know, innocent as doves, wives as serpents when you're reading stuff like that. But he has a, he has a very lengthy narrative in there about the invisible realm and it, it's compelling on a number of levels. I mean, he kind of bases his whole hermeneutic on it. He, he, he bashes um, confessionalism and confessions and stuff like that and systematic theology. And he uses the word biblical theology as correct theology, not the, not the feel or discipline of biblical theology. Mm. So I'm not down with any of that. Like I'm confessional. I, I like biblical theology, but I don't think just because it's my view means it's biblical or not biblical. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah so totally. I, I, definitely. There's definitely a kind of a personal narrative that under the undercurrent that runs through it. Yeah. But he, he, he's got a lot of resources and a lot of stuff that are, if you're interested in it, you can, you can check that out. Yeah, we'll, we'll post those in the, in the show notes so people can learn more about the Noahic and some of these other things too. Yeah, or you could just hold different views every other year, something like that. <laughs> That's right. Just have a new, yeah, have a new biblical view every year. I have a whole list of questions that I'm saving for heaven. So I'm That's going right. out on the list. Yeah, we'll just, we got eternity to ask them. And I'm sure, I'm sure we're going to think of more and more and more and more. Yeah. That's Man, awesome. I wish we had more time to just, we could talk all day about this. And uh, I know you got to get going soon. And um, so is there anything else you're Peter want to bring up or mention? I'm good. I think that was good. I think we covered all the big stuff. This is, yeah. I hope this opens people's eyes up. And um, I mean, I was taught just to Noah's Ark is, is a good feel good story where he had all these animals and then they brought him back. But, as you learn more of the covenantal approach, you realize just how crucial the Noe Covenant is and just how kind of intricate it is. So thanks, Dr. Van Pelt, for kind of bringing it's us through this amazing. stuff. Yeah, it's way better than like the little play sets that kids play with, you know? It's a little more, <laughs> yeah. it's a little more know, frightening probably than that. That's, <laughs> that's true. You know, 
you know, my preschool was actually called Noah's Ark. And I remember in the playground, there was a giant, it was a wooden, <clears throat> literal Noah's Ark we played uh, on. <laughs> and everybody outside of it died. That's right. <laughs> oh my gosh. No. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's dramatic. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks, Dr. Van Pelt. This has been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. We hope to have you on again sometime in the future. Yeah. Thanks for talking about theology and all the work you guys do. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. All right. Have a great night. You too. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world and how to best do that is rate and review us on itunes yeah and you after you rate a review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once retweeting us on twitter liking us on twitter liking us on instagram following us on both of those platforms because that actually puts in front of people's physical face this podcast these guests and most importantly the gospel the doctrines uh, that these guests are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing. And uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. Yeah. And you guys can find that link on Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes. If you're on this podcast, this specific episode, scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating. So we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap, pay for shipping, get nicer stuff, all for the focus of spreading the gospel further. Yep. All for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time.